Hello and welcome to Buy Positive. These are your hosts, Mari and Indy. And today we'll be talking to Katie John Went,、uh, who is a very multifaceted human being. We met them at Klexicon in London and thought that their story is something that everyone should hear. Having looked at your website, I would have to say that you are a force of nature. Um, but、um, could you could you introduce yourself to our listeners and and tell them a little bit about what you do and, and who you are? Okay, yeah, my name's Katie Katie John Went. I it's it's already、uh, um, an interesting question. What's your name? And I go I have to decide. Well, do I go with Katie or do I go with Katie John? Do I go with she? Do I go with they? Um, so my own identity journey is is a very long answer to a simple question. What do I do? I do a mixed. I'm involved in a number of art projects. I'm a photographer and a writer, but I'm also a very active public speaker、um, on questions of mental health, gender identity, sexuality, LGBTIQ history. Very much involved in human rights activism. Political activism, and I also in the UK coordinate the Human Library, which is an anti-stigma and stereotype project that's been started in Denmark in 2000, has been going for 18 years. So that's me in a nutshell. Plus, I like cats a lot. <laughs> you talk on on your website. You're pretty open about well, pretty much everything. And I was just wondering, how is your relationship with your gender and your sexuality? And I guess. How has it evolved over the years? Well, it, it kind of didn't evolve because I didn't believe in evolution because I was <laughs> a fundamentalist Christian,、mm-hmm. um, and as such, that meant I kept my entire gender and sexuality search for self, search for identity, search for comfort and authenticity. I kept it hidden,、um, kept it buried, and it meant that I didn't actually look for it overtly, but it. it It stayed stuck in my head a lot of the time. It didn't stop me though having my first relationship, aged fifteen,、um, with another guy in an all-male school. So my first relationship was with a guy, whilst I was male-bodied, but definitely confused about gender identity and sexuality.、Um, so my first exploration for around six months or so was、uh, at a physical level, gay. At a mental level, one might almost argue straight,、mm-hmm. <laughs> because I was umming and ahhing around how I felt about gender identity. But also, I'm 51, so when I was exploring that relationship, age 15, there was no internet.、Mm-hmm. There was also Section 28 in the UK, which meant that schools couldn't educate about LGBT.、Um, they could only educate about heterosexual sexuality, safety, and relationships. Um, so there was no opportunity to even discover more about what was acceptable, let alone the fact that I was in evangelical and subsequently later fundamentalist Christianity that told me that I was a sinner.、Hmm. So I had to choose between honesty to self and the the kind of dishonesty I sin that my religion told me I was as well. So I kept most of that secret, and I ended up I ended up going to university and.、Um, About a few years after that, marrying a Christian from the university who also became a psychiatrist, and she was female. So my next relationship after my male relationship at school was、um, a heterosexual relationship physically, but mentally now lesbian. <laughs> <laughs> so because I was more and more thinking, I am just burying this gendered self on the inside.
Hmm. And but being as well then a, a strong Christian, I actually with my fiance then we actually went to Christian therapy to kind of clear out the skeletons of my closet. Um, I, so I had my kind of my first kind of coming out experience was coming out about being confused around gender and sexuality and thinking that they were wrong. Mm-hmm. So I came out to Christians and they then tried to deliver me of the demons of, of gender and sexuality. Mm-hmm. And clearly they didn't work. <laughs> but, I, <laughs> but because the prayer went on for so long and the feeling of shame, I put it all back in the closet mm-hmm. and ended up married for 15 years to a psychiatrist whilst burying all this inner self mm-hmm. that I knew hadn't gone away. And in fact, the identity side of it goes back to well the first time I felt that there were these two choices in life these binary choices around gender was going to school age five and and sometime around my memory is a little blurred but sometime around then when the teachers said for a particular lesson or for a seating plan okay boys sit there girls sit there I felt well Mm -hmm. where do I sit you know, 46 years ago, I'd never heard of non-binary, let alone transgender and or gender identity. And so I'm thinking, well, I guess I should sit with the boys because that's who I look like, even though I'm a small boy and a short boy. You know, I, I had growth issues and amongst other things, I had a hormone issue. And so I didn't feel I looked identical to the boys, but I knew I was biologically one as far as I thought anyway. But I knew that I identified with the girls socially and psychologically, emotionally, and in terms of feeling a sense of belonging, um, a sense of tribe. I definitely felt that the girls were my tribe. Mm-hmm. So I thought, well, I want to sit with the girls, but I know I look like the boys. So I best guess I'd sit with the boys for now, except during spelling tests when I sat with the girls because they all wanted to copy me because mm-hmm. I was got 10 out of 10 during spelling and it was a way of sitting with the girls. <laughs> so, it was, you know, I, I never had the prowess of sport or physicality to for the girls to be attracted to me, but they were attracted to my brain. <laughs> so that was that first time. And I remember also thinking around that was only that was about gender identity, I guess, around five. Mm-hmm. Uh, my first experience of that dissonance with social realities and what I actually felt. And then the first time I felt that, I guess, around romantic slash sexual attraction was probably age 10 when at school we played um, Kiss Chase in the playground. And and this was, as I say, back in the 1970s. So there was only heterosexual Kiss Chase as an option. (laughs) And you would. And so one. So all the girls would line up at one end of the netball court and or, or the football ground and all the boys would line up at the other end. And then someone would say, you know, charge everyone would run towards the middle and try and grab someone of the opposite sex and I remember thinking at that point well again I think I look like the boys so I should stand on their end but actually I feel like I identify with the girls so maybe I should stand their end but I know I want to chase the girls so that would give me an unfair advantage so I better stand with the boys so I remember you can tell I'm the kind of person who overthinks things but those were my kind of first gender identity and first kind of sexuality attraction debates Mm -hmm. in my head Mm -hmm. and in both cases I kept them in my head Mm -hmm. I decided that I I would go with society which was then cishet normative in every sense of the word with an added layer of religion so it wasn't until my I think my gender identity slash sexuality came back to bite me on the bum in my late 30s I got Mm -hmm. depressed 
Um, I was still married and I realised that, and as many friends subsequently told me, I was a, a grey shadow of, the, you know, the quite exuberant, colourful person that they had known when I was in my 20s. Mm-hmm. And suddenly in my late 30s, I had just become a two-dimensional person who was just doing what my wife wanted or said. I, I was very passive. I was very adaptive. And I'd become less and less of myself in order to fit in with other people's expectations, be they Christian, be they marital, be they societies, you know, expectations of who you could and should be. Mm. And that was about 12 years ago. For, for, for luck or good luck or bad, my then wife found pictures of me cross-dressed on my computer because I'd been experimenting with cross-dressing again, something I'd done since I was about nine or ten. Because of the religious overlays, every now and then I would stop it, I would dispose of all the clothes I might have gathered. Uh, And I'd always been confused by it as well, because I kind of, if anything, I reckon I identified as a tomboy girl rather than a girly girl. And so even the cross-dressing was a stereotype I was struggling with because the stereotype of cross-dressing was cross-dressing as something quite girly, quite femme. That also did not feel who I was. And um, but my wife found these pictures of me and gave me uh, an ultimatum, divorce or stop it. And I said, well, I've been trying to stop it for 30 years and that hasn't done anything. So and I'm really concerned that if I don't try and find out what this is and who I am, I will be cursed and condemned to spend the rest of my life going through this cycle that many transvestites, for example, find, which is this kind of uh, collect and then purge, express and then shame cycle um, around trying to find one's identity and indeed one's style or, or comfort levels around that. And because I had the religious overlay, that meant I could never find a comfort level around it. And I was then stuck with choosing again between two sins the the sin of divorce or or the sin of transgender and I had to choose because then at that point I believed that marriage was for life and the divorce was a sin so I I had to struggle with that and eventually did divorce and I think actually I have to thank my she my wife actually to some extent publicly outed me to family to members of the medical profession and to church members. So it meant that I kind of left most of those. My family didn't understand, but they gathered round me. And I think I had that moment where I had to choose. I'm I'm overboard. I've left the safety of the Christian and heterosexual ship. And I'm now swimming in uncharted waters with sharks. (laughs) But do do I now, you know, ask for a life belt and to get back aboard the ship and just go back into normality or do I actually swim for my life and see what this is and so it was sink or swim like when you some people who teach babies to swim by chucking Mm. them in a swimming pool so I I, I, so having been outed I had to decide whether to stay out or retreat Mm -hmm. and I thought well if I had to choose when to come out myself it might take me another 10 years so kind of slightly perversely I am I actually appreciate my ex-wife for outing me (laughs) because she did something I didn't have the courage to do Mm. something I now have plenty of courage around but she was that in that first force that gave me forced me into a decision of whether to be myself and how to find myself Mm. so that that's how I kind of started out on the journey and then I went straight into therapy to (laughs) try and um, well actually I went straight to a therapist and said can you stop me from being trans? 
So having tried to stop myself from being transgender via Christian Christian therapists and Christian healers 20 years previously, I now went to secular healers uh, and said, can you stop me from being trans? Unfortunately, I had a therapist who said no. <laughs> she said, but I can help you discover who you are if that is trans if that is anything but i can accompany you on your journey to discovering who you are and that was the first point i felt liberated to find out what that was and who i was were you aware as as a child uh, when you were first discovering your gender identity were you also aware of the fact that you were intersex or did that come later i think that those facets came well as a child i didn't know anything it was Later in life, I discovered a family dinner conversation, my mother saying, oh, you know, when you were born, the doctors, you know, couldn't work out your sex for the first couple of hours. And you were announced to me as a, as a girl. And I was called Catherine Elizabeth for, you know, not much longer than an hour or two before they came back and said, oh, no, it's a boy. And so then I was called Jonathan Marks. So hence my name, Katie John. Mm -hmm. is the abbreviations of my two birth names, Katie and John. Um, although the Katie is kind of an accident that came about through um, my choosing the name Katie was an accident of an exploration into the BDSM world. <laughs> that's, that's a whole other story, but it's coincidental that it happened to also be abbreviation of my birth name. So when I came mm -hmm. to legally changing my, my name, I, I went with that as well, even though it was somebody in a BDSM relationship that suggested the name Katie to me. Um, I, I've tried everything in life. So I tried submission, I tried domination and tried everything in between across all of that. Just, I think I spent a massive search in my life exploring sex, mm. thinking I was exploring gender and got the two confused. Mm. Um, but in terms of the intersex aspect, I, when I was 11, I ended up, well, when I was five, I didn't grow for a year and I had an operation um, on my genitals because there was a very minor operation, but to do with the fact that they, you know, they hadn't formed typically. I discovered subsequently that both my father and grandfather on one side and my grandfather on the other side had all had a similar operation. I was the first child, therefore, to inherit from two sides of this family an atypical masculine development issue, mm -hmm. um, which involved my grandparents and my parents all having um, forced circumcisions for medical reasons. Mm -hmm. I didn't get that. They gave, did something different for me. When I had a dental problem, actually, and, and an orthodontic problem, it was then they looked at me and said, well, you're not very tall for your age. You, you know, you're the shortest kid in your year. In fact, I was the shortest kid in two or three years of my school. And the, the dentist said, well, we, we should get your bone age checked out because your, your teeth, your orthodontics aren't going to move unless we check your age. And then I got sent to a pediatrician and they did x-rays and bone scans and eventually they discovered I had a, a puberty disorder which meant that I, um, my body didn't develop um, typically like other boys and I was in an all-boys school so I got bullied you know for being I don't know um, weak effeminate effeminate not in the sense of being girly but effeminate in those days meaning someone who wasn't very macho wasn't very masculine nothing to do with dress or fashion, but it was temperament and size and mus muscularity and things like that. Um, so much so that I did three years in the army cadets to try and man up. But m the boys in my year hit puberty at, say, 13. I didn't even hit puberty until 17 plus. Mm. So I was two to three years behind in puberty development. And I ha and uh, 
they were going to give me human growth hormone, but it did seem to stem to what was subsequently discovered um, to be, you know, a hormone disorder that meant my body didn't develop fast or typically in response to androgens and testosterone. And when I eventually chose to take estrogen, not until I was, well, when was that now? Um, age 43 mm -hmm. or 44 around that age. That was when they did a blood test and said, well, we're not going to have to give you any anti-androgens because you've got barely any testosterone that we, you know, to measure. Mm -hmm. So it was clear that subsequently I, I had a um, biological lack of testosterone mm -hmm. or a biological lack of response to, to testosterone, mm -hmm. which is probably more accurate than my receptors to it. Didn't really know what to do with it. Mm -hmm. And it turns out they didn't know what to do with estrogen either. But... <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, the discovery that I had some atypical biological um, endocrinological components came later, definitely. But at the same time, it also helped to me to explain why I didn't feel typically male or typically female. Mm -hmm. Did you did you have kids with your with your wife? Uh, I couldn't. We okay. tried for quite a while of the 15 years. Turns out I'm infertile. Mm -hmm. Again, lack of testosterone mm -hmm. subsequently made that the reason why. And it made it obvious um, we adopted or rather fostered for three years. So we, I fostered a five year old boy mm -hmm. for three years and, and enjoyed parenting. But at the same time, realized to parent someone else means you can't fully be available to parent yourself. You can't, particularly if your own emotional and psychological and certainly identity development has been on hold most of your life because of fear, because of religion, because of whatever else. Uh, I think I definitely realized that the amount of commitment it takes to parent a child gets in the way of self-discovery if you yourself are stuck mm. so in the end with the marriage breaking up with the child moving on to a new care placement I was quite relieved and mm. now gladly feel that I wasn't able to parent a child because I think parenting is an incredible commitment that is 24-7 mm -hmm. that is lifetime and as much as I'm very very good with kids kids loving me and I've done youth work on and off and things I knew that I had to go on quite a lengthy journey to parent myself and discover myself, mm -hmm. which is basically what I spent my 40s doing. Ten years of personal parenting and personal discovery and going on workshops around the world to discover who I was. And uh, speaking of discovery, you've talked a lot about how, um, you know, that you've, you've done a lot of self-discovery in terms of sexuality when you were trying to figure out um, mm. your gender identity. You've done, you know, things like kink, uh, you've dabbled in pretty much anything. How did you arrive at, at asexuality now? Uh, it's kind of the only one left. No, because <laughs> I tried all the others. I tried all the letters of the alphabet. So when I first went into therapy, um, I kind of got to a place, I guess, in therapy where I was trying to be a comfortable transvestite, someone who might identify as heterosexual, have a, a male body, male gender identity, but likes to dress and identify as female some of the time so I thought that and to me that was the least of all evils because I thought being trans being trans being transsexual which is the language then was the worst evil I could imagine that I could even do to myself I was internally transphobic um, so I, I kind of reluctantly thought well I could I could I, had, I took Eddie Izzard um, the, the the trans comedian as a mm -hmm, mm -hmm. as a kind of um, role model and I thought if I could be like Eddie Izzard that would be okay mm -hmm. um, and you know I'll be a 
in the end up, I ended up doing stand-up comedy as well. And I bumped into Eddie Izzard at a big um, anti-Brexit march in London two weeks ago and got a selfie with him and said he'd been an inspiration 10 years ago. But I think that was only the beginning of my journey. And I realised then that it was fear stopping me from going all the way. And I don't just mean going all the way in terms of identity, but in terms of surgery, in terms of anything like that. I was blessed with an absolutely brilliant therapist, very unconventional. But in terms of therapy, the only kind of ther therapists I'm actually, I can actually cope with and trust are the ones who are unconventional. So I always try and push all their buttons and boundaries at the beginning in order to decide whether I can trust them. <laughs> and if they break sufficient numbers of buttons and boundaries, then I trust them. So it's kind of counterintuitive and completely unprofessional and unethical. <laughs> but she was brilliant and she recommended to me some sex body communication relationship workshops Mm -hmm. um, that existed in the UK and the US. I ended up doing those workshops for a couple of years, exploring body. And mm -hmm. the nice thing about those workshops is that they let me explore, essentially not identity, but explore sexuality mm -hmm. with both men and women whilst having a male body and at the time choosing to identify as female, but with a male body. Mm -hmm. And it was an incredibly safe place with very good boundaries that enabled me to explore those things, call myself Katie and have other people in the room respect me as Katie, but Katie mm -hmm. with a penis. And I, I found that uh, an incredible journey of itself. And I ended up in a relationship with someone who was bisexual, a woman much older than myself, um, very beautiful, very kind of Annie Lennox looking. Mm -hmm. um, she was taller than me. She often wore male clothing identified as female and she was um, very much uh, uh, you know a, a dominant dominatrix and explored that relationship for a year and so there's quite a lot of kinky sex involved in that and then gradually went from there through a number of relationships she was also a therapist um, I basically <laughs> I basically only dated therapists for the mm -hmm. next six years I think it was not the ones who I was seeing as therapists, but quite independent of the ones. So I had a yeah. therapist and I was being had by therapists. But, uh, and I recognised during that that 90% of the time I was absolutely attracted to women. But 10% of the time I had fantasies of attraction to male, um, fantasies of attraction of sex with male. So very occasionally I would explore that in, in, in club and fetish scenes, but mm -hmm. always felt not convinced by it but not opposed to it mm -hmm. there were again lots of people that thought that stereotypically I, I must be attracted to male if I identify as female because mm -hmm. that's the, the only kind of stereotype they could imagine I ended up going to one of these workshops in the end in America meeting an incredible woman out there also a therapist uh, <laughs> Couldn't tell when she was naked in the middle of the workshop. Um, I mean, this was in California. There were 80 kind of people in the room, all naked and spending a weekend together in a clothing optional retreat in the hills of California, all exploring sexuality at um, various levels, both physical exercises and verbal exercises of communication and also exercises of trust and risk. Um, to find your own boundaries, to develop the ability to say yes and no, and, and the freedom to explore things. And I ended up um, dating this woman for a year and spending a lot of time in California. She, what was interesting was that she had dated women for about a dozen years. She, but she'd also had two female partners who had transitioned mm -hmm. to male. And she said that after they transitioned to male, it didn't stop her loving them. Mm -hmm. And so she figured that 
gender was less important than the relationship itself. Mm. And then she met me kind of contemplating going in the other direction. But at present, I had taken no hormones, not, and I was just Katie with a male body. Mm. Um, we spent a year dating, even got engaged, um, and then realised that I didn't know who I was still and what I wanted. And the biggest word that she kept coming up with was, you know, I can't trust you, Katie, in a relationship if you can't be authentic to who you are. And I don't think you even know who you are still mm -hmm. and what you want or whether you're even attracted to men or women. And I had to admit that she was right. You know, we remain good friends. In fact, I went to see her this year uh, in the summer in America again after nine years. Mm -hmm. But the... I started then a, a fresh new journey of taking again more risks to to find out who I was mm -hmm. and what I really wanted. And one of the things she challenged me to do within our relationship. So we went open relationship so that she could pursue the opportunity to reconnect with a, a trans male friend of hers. And so that I could pursue her encouragement for me to explore men as well as women and to work out what my sexuality was. Mm. And also whether I wanted a female body or the male one that I had, even though the male one that I had didn't work typically. Mm. And that's a whole separate question because I'd mm. always found sex painful and mm. therefore had always been wary of penetrative sex as an act, but had always absolutely loved touch and intimacy and arousal as part of foreplay and as part of, int part of intimacy. So I love intimacy, but I used to hate sex. Mm -hmm. uh, TIV sex and so I had a couple of one night stands with guys back in England and she wanted me to report back to her on how I was in them and how, how I found them and I said well they got aroused I didn't <laughs> <laughs> so I said it, it, it's it's clear that some guys have no problem being attracted to me but I think I have a problem being attracted to the guys <laughs> um, I don't dislike being touched because I like being touched by anyone in that sense I'm a you know I'm a touch junkie Mm -hmm. uh, but I, it doesn't necessarily get me turned on and doesn't certainly make me want to reciprocate always. But I realise that visually and aesthetically, I can be attracted to male or female. Mm -hmm. uh, with my current partner, and when we used to sit down and watch episodes of everything from True Blood to Sense8 or anything else like that, we were both, because my current partner is bisexual, we would both sit down and, and, and watch these characters on films and TV and we would both be attracted to both sexes. I've definitely got a bisexual aesthetic, um, but not necessarily bisexual activity anymore. So that was the point where I tried men and women again and then definitely felt that, OK, I 90 percent prefer men. Definitely. I mean, women. See, still get confused. No, no. 90 percent preferred women. And when our relationship broke up, I then went in to carried on the concept of open relationships. And I spent the next couple of years dating about 12 women concurrently about six of them regularly and six of them on off, most of whom were friends with each other. And I thought, this is super weird. You know, I'm having relationships with multiple girls, the average heterosexual guy, this is their dream. Uh, and I'm at the time, you know, a transvestite, transgender, male-bodied person called Katie, mm -hmm. who has more female partners than the average cishet guy could get or want. And I'd gone into therapy thinking, if I ever come out as trans, that's the end of sex and the end of relationships for life, because who would want to date a trans person? That was how I felt. So I thought that I was never going to get relationships again. But also, I think it's partly because of what I now realise is my asexuality or certainly grey sexuality. I had no desire to jump into bed with people for the mm -hmm. sake of sex. 
I was very happy to jump into pe bed with people for the sake of touch, for the sake of conversation, for the sake of cuddles, for the sake of waking up next to them in the morning and making them coffee and having deep psychological and philosophical questions in bed long into the night listening to music while stroking each other. So that's what I wanted. And because I didn't give out the vibes of I'm a guy coming on to you with a view to get to first base, second base, third base, mm -hmm. I think I became a very safe, sensual partner to other people. And even within those sexual relationships, I still felt that actually I preferred the sensual to the sexual. Mm -hmm. I still pref I preferred the, the sapio to the physical. And mm -hmm. so I preferred the, you know, the, the psychological and emotional intimacy to... Um, conventional certainly genital sex mm. now i regard actually having an in-depth intimate conversation with someone for two hours as sex <laughs> still because it's it's intimacy yeah. but it's it, and it doesn't have to be called cerebral it can be absolutely emotional psychological and physiological i remember the first time i was having lunch with someone who i wasn't physically attracted to she was another therapist um, <laughs> and, and a union analyst and and a social worker and a bunch of things and we were having a conversation i was still male-bodied at the time and i got an erection under the table because of what we were talking about and it wasn't talking about sex we were talking about brain stuff we were talking about psychology and i was turned on by the conversation of psychology and we then had a kind of a three-week kind of exploratory <laughs> relationship together which was physical and both admitted from the outset by the way we are agreed that we don't fancy each other aren't we we said yes fine okay <laughs> right let's just explore sex whilst not fancying each other but actually what we were attracted to in each other was our minds and i think over the course of the next two or three years of open relationships with various women i realized the women i was attracted to Apart from a brief fling with a, uh, when I was about 43, I had a brief fling with a 21-year-old who had a very, very strong sexual appetite three to four times a day. And, and it was exhausting. It was a great, it was a great route to weight loss. We both, <laughs> we both lost a lot of kilos during the, the relationship. Um, best diet ever, the sex <laughs> diet. But I also realized, again, I was doing the sex component for her. Because I liked pleasing people and I liked seeing, you know, other people happy and other people getting turned on and aroused. But it wasn't that important to me. But basically, I, I then spent two or three years dating older women or not necessarily older women, but women who were my own age because <laughs> I was old. So women in their 40s whilst I was in my 40s, because what I liked about them was that they were women who knew their own mind. Mm. They were women very often who'd come out of stormy relationships and marriages, domestic abuse even. They were generally women who'd been married to men, but now realise that they were bisexual. I think nearly everybody I dated was bisexual, bar one, no, bar, bar one or two who identified as lesbian, and who must have been very confused dating me whilst I still had a male body. Um, <laughs> but they, again, I think were attracted to the mind mm -hmm. and absolutely respected and gendered me as female. Mm -hmm. which in the in the current age of trans and turf wars and all the rest of it is quite surprising that there were absolutely women who were lesbians who had no problem with someone who identified as female might well be called a lesbian and might still have a male body mm -hmm. and hadn't decided whether to change it or not yet so these were people who at a psychological level recognized there was something that might be called a psychological lesbian <laughs> uh, uh, and, and, they, and they absolutely, these people existed who were absolutely fine with it. And I didn't force that yeah. 
acceptance on anyone. They, they, it came from them as, as a welcoming thing. But during that period, I began to then start taking hormones, so develop breasts, and then had to start questioning whether to change the lower part of my body. It was when I then ended up meeting this amazing Dutch woman who was bisexual, but mostly preferred guys, mostly preferred guys who were rock stars with long hair, mm-hmm. great asses, um, and, and good, interesting brains, you know, and were kind of creative types. Um, this is summarising my partner's mm-hmm. likes here. But we met each other at a festival, an arts festival. Um, I was doing theatre reviews. She was a graphic designer on it. I, you know, I saw her in the room. I thought, oh, she's attractive. Um, she saw me in the room. thought, oh, nice breasts, um, nice arse, nice hair. <laughs> you know, and think. And she initially saw me entirely as female. Then she heard me, heard me open my mouth and talk. And... Mm-hmm. As you can tell, I make no effort to modify my voice into what other people might stereotypically describe as a female register. I don't go to voice therapy. I don't try and speak like a woman because there's no such thing as how a woman speaks. Mm. There are women with deeper voices than me uh, and not just because of they smoke too much. <laughs> um, most of them do happen to be black jazz singers, but... I do know women with deep voices and I had a number of partners who said, Katie, you know, we love your breasts. Your breasts have grown. We like your breasts. That's great. And actually, if you want to change your genitals below the waist, we're, we're good with that too. Curiously, the one thing they didn't want me to change was my voice. And I found it fascinating. And they said, because your voice is you. Mm. And, and they felt that breasts, genitals were kind of additions secondary sexuality secondary aspects of our personality of not well they're not part of our personality at all but secondary aspects of who we are if not tertiary whereas my voice was very much a part of who i was and they said if you start modifying your voice trying to be accepted or act like a particular version of female it won't be you it was my partners who actually said just stick with your voice and who you are and so i did and i and, and i found that very interesting. So when my current partner first heard me speak, her first thought was in her head was, hmm, that's no ordinary kind of woman, <laughs> having heard the voice. And she came up and chatted to me afterwards and we got chatting and, you know, she didn't ask me about my gender identity. She just mm-hmm. was introduced to me as Katie, heard mm-hmm. someone with a masculine voice, uh, or rather, as again, that's a, a word that doesn't really apply, heard someone with a deep voice. Mm-hmm. Although, ironically, as a child in my teens, I spent the entire time actually faking putting on a deep voice mm-hmm. because I got bullied for having a high-pitched voice before my voice broke because my mm-hmm. puberty was so late. Mm-hmm. So, if anything, the only voice I've ever pretended to be has been um, ma- has been hyper-masculine, trying to fake the hyper-masculinity rather than anything else. In fact, my psychiatrist said to me... Um, that he he knew I was trans before I did, mm-hmm. <laughs> because because he'd known me before I went to him to see him about see, see questions about being trans, and and I asked him why, and he said, well because you've all, you've always come across to me as someone who has tried too hard to be male. When I started, I wouldn't call it acting more female, but acting less male, it was simply dropping the act being masculine. And, and I would argue that now who I am is human, not me, male or female. But I didn't necessarily. I tried the act of being female for a few months, tried makeup and heels and short skirts and shit. And <laughs> thought that doesn't that doesn't fit either. So I'm very comfortable in Doc Martens, zero makeup, jeans um, and a voice 
that is yeah. going to confuse people all of the time. My partner and I, we ended up together with a slightly odd relationship where she accepted me from the outset as a, as a human being, neither male nor female in that sense. I mean, just um, it was nice to hear that you actually had good experience with therapists and mental health professionals uh, eventually, um, and people who who knew how to adapt and and provide therapy that is adapted to um, to LGBTQ plus people. Yeah. Um, Not necessarily the one I was married to, but definitely the ones that treated me. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. What I had in mind because I had, because I'm had also a... bipolar, so I went. I was under mental health for bipolar and anxiety mm-hmm. disorder. Mm-hmm. A lot more questions that we'd want to ask, but um, to to wrap it up for for today, um, we we were wondering because you you had this experience of being unconventional within the community, so you mm. probably have experienced not feeling entirely safe in what should be safe spaces, um, queer spaces, and it's a question and something that comes up a lot uh, when we talk to people, like how how do you do when what is supposed what is uh, supposed to be your um, safe space isn't actually safe for you. That's that's very true. I mean, going to LGBT pubs. I think I eventually found that the definition of safe is 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 carrying your own confidence, safety, and energy, and being yourself. But I definitely found myself judged in various spaces, in transgender spaces, in lesbian spaces, in gay spaces, uh, you know, and, and even in BDSM spaces. It was. I mean, I remember going to the, the Clexicon convention a couple of weeks ago um, where I met you guys and things. Mm-hmm. And, and, and what I found there was I actually because of the current toxic environment between trans people and a, a small minority of radical feminists mm-hmm. uh, around trans and, and women's sex based rights, going to a convention that was advertised as principally female queer female but definitely advertised as lgbtq which was great um um, so i knew that the t was included and i saw and i was invited to run a panel there on trans in media and entertainment Mm -hmm. nonetheless i suddenly i did go there with trepidation and some social anxiety and fear that i was walking into a place with three or four hundred women who would be thinking how who let the trans in as opposed to who let the dogs out you know Mm -hmm. but that is currently the the fear in a lot of spaces in the UK for trans people that all the inroads we've made to acceptance, even within LGBT communities, has gone backwards. Given mm-hmm. that at London, uh, you know, London Pride this mm-hmm. year, mm-hmm. that a, a group of feminists hijacked the front of Pride and said, "Get the L out of LGBT and get the T out of LGBT," sort mm-hmm. of thing. Basically, trying to. Um, reclaim um, kind of some kind of lesbian independence from LGBT identities mm-hmm. and rights. I think that has changed the, the social atmosphere. So mm-hmm. queer spaces, actually the word queer yeah. absolutely feels a safe space. Mm-hmm. It's the LGBT spaces that don't now. Mm-hmm. Certain, certain, and certainly feminist spaces. And I regularly go and speak at, uh, at FemSocks at universities and during LGBT history mm-hmm. months. And I absolutely love it that in a university femsoc space i feel accepted because feminists of a university age tend to be what i would call intersectional 2.0 and 100 percent endorsing of of their trans sisters and their trans brothers that that i feel is a safe space but as soon as you go somewhere else with older feminists and older lesbians suddenly you think oh my god am i going to be accepted and I was again asked to do a panel at the at a Women of the World Festival earlier this year. 
and I'm going to be doing some at next year's one in London. And again, I went in suddenly thinking, oh, my God, um, is there going to be a backlash? Mm-hmm. And uh, I remember the the head and founder of the WOW Festivals, Jude Kelly, at, one of, at the opening panel, turned to me and said, well, there were five of us who sat on stage with her. And she said, when we open, Katie, the Hulk, the whole festival i'm going to come and ask you something first because you're set to my left and i said absolutely not you are not going to ask me the first question because if you ask me the first question this is going to be picked up upon by the the, the transphobic feminists mm-hmm. and said you let a man speak first now i don't identify as a man but i know that that's how it would be seen mm-hmm. so i said i'm asking you respectfully to come to me last speak to all the people um, and again, many trans people wouldn't even accept the language that I'm using now, but speak to all the women born women first mm-hmm. before you mm-hmm. come to me. I want to be the last person spoke to. So I'm not see, seen as taking women's space, women's mm-hmm. voices, women's oxygen and, you know, a, a kind of a trans version of mansplaining. Mm-hmm. So I'm very conscious of how things are seen. Therefore, therefore, yeah, I am wary of queer and female or LGBT and female spaces if they're not overtly advertised as queer. And I see queer as the new inclusive term, Mm -hmm. even though it has obviously its own checkered history. Well, we do have to wrap up, but uh, we would absolutely love to have you back on the podcast, um, particularly to talk about um, maybe your experience with with religion, because that is a fascinating subject. And And one that our uh, listener asked us about. Yeah. No, I'd be very happy to do that. I was briefly a missionary and studied Hebrew, Greek, Arabic and taught theology for a while. So I kind of know too much about it and struggled with that aspect as well. Okay, great. And we'll definitely schedule another interview. But for now, thank you so much for talking to us. That's been a pleasure. Thank you. Bye-bye. Thank you. you. Bye-bye. That's it for this week's episode. Please follow Katie John on your social media and we will talk to you next week. Bye.